Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, I'm Sarah. Welcome to the second episode of The Victory Kitchen. Today I'll be talking about the big one, sugar rationing. Then I'll be highlighting a special wartime pamphlet called Baking on Your Sugar Ration. And finally, I'll share with you some wartime memories of my husband's grandmother that she shared with me recently. What do you think about when you hear the word sugar? To me, I think about a food commodity that has a very complicated history and has a lot of emotion attached to it. I mean, in history... It's tied to terrible things like the slave trade. On the other hand, it's also allowed civilizations to flourish. In today's American society, sugar has kind of an extreme spectrum where on one hand, people love it. They love eating it. They love baking with it. And even though there are a lot of substitutes out there, nothing really quite takes the place of sugar, at least That's my opinion. (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum, sugar is almost demonized because of how bad it is for our health. So however you feel about sugar, one thing we can't argue about is that sugar has been a vital food crop in modern civilization. So what's the story about sugar in World War II? Why was sugar so important? Well, there are two vital things to remember. One is that they viewed sugar as an important energy food. And two, sugar was vital for morale as a comfort food. Sugar was the longest food commodity to be rationed. It was rationed from 1942 until 1947, two years after the war ended. So where did the sugar go? I kind of like to think of it as the great sugar shuffle. If you think on a global scale... There's all these countries that import sugar or make sugar, and the sugar has to get to its destination for the consumers. Well, during the war, because of not just the Japanese bombing in the Pacific, where the West Indies and the Philippines are, where we got a lot of our sugar, you have to also think about, besides sugar cane, there was also the sugar beet crops, which were grown in the United States and in Europe and other places in the world. Well, especially in Europe, these sugar beet crops were just not an option anymore because of bombing, the lack of people to do the farming, lack of equipment. It just wasn't an option anymore. So the world had to take what little supply of sugar there was and it had to shift among the different countries that were importing the sugar. The United States did get some sugar from Hawaii. In fact, I came across a reference in one of my books that talked about how sugar was used as ballast and cargo in ships returning to the U.S. after delivering military goods in Hawaii. Another source of American sugar came from Cuba. Cuba's sugar once went almost exclusively to the U.S. A bulk of that, however, became part of the Lend-Lease program and was sent directly to the U.K. and Russia. 
One of the big problems in getting sugar to the United States and really anywhere else in the world was a lack of ships. Besides the fact that a lot of ships were being used now to transport military goods, it was just too dangerous to be shipping very much of anything because we were losing a lot of ships to U-boats and in the Atlantic and then the Japanese attacks in the Pacific. A final reason of why sugar was rationed was because a huge stock of available sugar went to the soldiers. It went in the form of candy bars, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, uh, sugar for coffee, desserts like ice cream. This was because sugar, like I said before, was a morale food. It made things feel normal in a circumstance that was beyond normal. And what's interesting to note is that even in the 1940s, the United States was the world's largest consumer of sugar. So that actually hasn't changed at all. (laughs) So what did the government try to do to help with this sugar problem? Any other sugar from Cuba was brought to a special port in Florida that took the sugar on dedicated train cars. There was a problem with this, though, too, because there were a shortage of train cars. Another aspect of the problem that they were trying to solve was the government The government had sugar beet crop programs telling the farmers how much to grow, but unfortunately these never really lined up with planting times, so they would get the notice out, but by then the farmers had already planted their crops, so it was too late. So expectations weren't ever met until 1947, when there was a huge U.S. sugar beet crop, and that made it so that the sugar availability was enough to satisfy demand and sugar rationing ended. I was able to find this amazing government video made in 1945 called What's Happened to Sugar, explaining why sugar was still being rationed at the end of the war. I'll leave the link to this at my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com, so that you can take a look at it because it's it really illustrates it so well. Now we get down to the actual sugar rationing. Sugar ration planning began in 1941 due to forecasted shortages. They kind of saw it coming. The great thing about sugar rationing was that it was a gentle way of breaking the public into the idea of rationing and therefore even greater rationing programs down the road. This also helped the government work out any kinks early in the war. It still wasn't a perfect system, but it was a big improvement over the sugar rationing in World War I. So how was sugar rationed? Sugar rationing started May 4th, 1942, using War Ration Book 1. I'm going to read to you this really interesting little article from Life magazine, May 11th, 1942. And it's all about the sugar rationing. The title is Sugar, U.S. Consumers Register for First Ration Books. On May 4th, for the first time in its history, the people of the United States lined up inside schoolhouses to register for their first book of rationing coupons. Sugar is the first commodity for which War Ration Book 1 will be used. All sugar sales stopped April 27th. They were resumed May 5th, where registration was completed, but only to consumers armed with a War Ration Book. The fixed ration of half a pound a week per person is half what the sweet-toothed U.S. public normally consumes, but is almost twice as much as allotment in France and Italy. 
Commercial users of sugar, such as bakeries, candy, and ice cream manufacturers, received ration books April 28th to 29th, were allotted about 70% normal requirements. The existing sugar shortage, which necessitates rationing so that all on the home front may have a fair share, is due to one fact that 62% of sugar used in U.S. was imported from Philippines, Hawaii, and West Indies, and two, large amounts of sugar are used in manufacture of alcohol for explosives. And then in the caption for one of the photographs, it says that it shows a week's supply of sugar for one person is equal to 48 teaspoons. That is ample for 14 cups of coffee, seven helpings of cereal, seven of fruit, and four of cake. Individual may decide whether he'd prefer more coffee and less cake or more whiskey sours and no cereal at home. In addition, he may purchase without ration stamps, beverages, candy, desserts in commercial places. In some of the other captions for the photographs, that they give advice about sugar. One of them is um, someone's pouring syrup on top of a grapefruit half. It says honey, maple, or corn syrup and molasses are suggested for sweetening fruits. These may also be used for cooked desserts. There's another one showing a woman pouring off the fruit juice from a can of fruit cocktail. It says juice from canned fruits should be kept. It can be used as a sweetening agent in cooking, sauces, and for jelly desserts. And in this last picture, it shows a woman sprinkling salt over fruit, like canned fruit. It says salt, although not a sugar substitute for sugar, adds flavor to most foods, has the odd effect of accentuating the sugar taste. And finally, it's got this amazing, huge picture of War Ration Book 1 with all its stamps. <laughs> I only have uh, ones that with stamps taken out because they were used in the war. But anyway, you can access this Life magazine online for free, and I'll include a link to that at my blog. This article, though, it really, even though it's very short, it, it gives a lot of great information. And it, they mentioned one of the reasons for sugar rationing that I neglected to mention before was that large amounts of sugar were used in the manufacture of alcohol for explosives. And in wartime, that's extremely important. Now, if you wanted to get some canning done in the height of fruit season, you had to fill out a form declaring how much you plan to can, exactly the amount of sugar you would need for your canning project, and you wouldn't be able to use the sugar for anything else. As we learned about in the Life magazine article, the sugar rationing affected the commercial industry for things like candy and ice cream. The public didn't have to turn in any ration coupons to go to like a commercial establishment for something that contains sugar, but businesses were only allotted so much. Now let's talk about how the American public dealt with sugar shortages. This may or may not come as a surprise, but commercial food companies jumped on the victory bandwagon to help fill this need. Like in my hand, I'm holding today's featured cookbook, Baking on Your Sugar Ration. This was published by the Wheat Flour Institute. So, of course, they're promoting the use of flour, while at the same time showing how patriotic they are by sharing with you these recipes on how to make do with your sugar ration. The purpose of cookbooks like these wasn't just showing housewives how to bake with less sugar, but also to teach them how to use sugar substitutes because different types of sugars behave differently when they're baked. Sugar substitutes could include honey, corn syrup, molasses, sorghum, 
processed foods like jello, sweetened condensed milk, graham crackers, pudding mix, those all had sugar already in them. Then also dried fruits and like the Life magazine article mentioned, canned fruit juice. Finally, there's maple syrup and maple sugar. By using any of these, you could reduce your sugar use, but if you weren't an experienced baker, a guide to help you navigate all these sugar substitutes was really helpful. Today's featured cookbook is Baking on Your Sugar Ration by Clara Gebbard Snyder, published by the Wheat Flour Institute in 1942. Like a lot of cookbooks from this time, it's very patriotic. It has red, white, and blue colors on it. It's got a V for victory, kind of abstract V in the design. And I'll put a picture of this on my blog, of course, so you can see all the things that this cookbook has to offer. Inside it explains what the Wheat Flour Institute is, because I actually didn't know what it was. It says Wheat Flour Institute is an educational organization sponsored by the flour milling industry of the United States. Its service in supplying information on flour and flour products is free to teachers and group leaders. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always read the introduction to cookbooks, but this one is actually definitely worth reading because it gives all the different tips about using sugar replacements that a baker would need to know if you weren't familiar with it. I'll just read the first little bit. It says, delicious breads and coffee cakes, cookies and cakes can continue to come from the kitchens of knowing cooks. Sugar may be short, but there is still good white flour, now better than ever with its added B vitamins and iron. Cooks in this country are fortunate in having an unlimited supply of the best flour in the world, enriched white flour. There is no substitute for white flour, for no other flour contains the proper ingredients in just the right proportion for making good batters and doughs. Now what they say here is actually very true. Um, in other countries in the world, especially the UK and Europe, they did not have the luxury of white flour during the war. The introduction goes on to say that each of these sweeteners has its own characteristics. Honey is sweetest of all. Corn syrup is least sweet. Molasses, sorghum, and maple syrup give their special flavors to products containing them. It also says that sweeteners most generally used in this cookbook are corn syrup, both light and dark, honey, molasses, sorghum, and maple syrup. Maple sugar, when available, is used like brown sugar. Now, I wish I had read this introduction before I baked the two recipes in this book that I'll share with you. I used corn syrup. I did not, I mean, I knew corn syrup was a little bit less sweet, but it really makes a big difference if you know that in advance. <laughs> and I'll get to that, the details on that in a minute. Now I'm going to take a quick little second to um, explain about sorghum. Not everyone might be familiar with sorghum. I grew up in the Midwest where sorghum was, um, you know, you could get it pretty easily. I had to really hunt for it out here. So when I was in Pennsylvania at an Amish store, I think I found it. So I just bought it because it's really hard to get. <laughs> um, sorghum, it comes from a type of grass that was imported from Africa and it grows really well in the Plains states. It's uh, the taste of it is a lot like molasses. That's about the closest I can come to it, but it's very thick and molassesy. <laughs> and a last word of wisdom from this book 
They say that because these sweeteners are so different, no general rule can be made for their use. Usually it is wise to follow recipes which have been carefully worked out and tested. A few guides may, however, be helpful in adjusting your favorite recipes. And that's what they go on to explain, these different guides. All right, so the recipes that I tried from this cookbook are the caramel cinnamon muffins and the date peanut butter drops. So the caramel cinnamon muffins are your basic muffin with the exception that you prepare each muffin cup in the pan with a half teaspoon butter or margarine and one teaspoon dark corn syrup. Then you fill each cup two-thirds full with the batter. The batter just consists of flour, baking powder, cinnamon salt, an egg, two tablespoons light corn syrup or honey, milk, and some melted shortening. Pretty basic muffin recipe. Well, I decided just to opt for corn syrup in both the batter and then obviously in the bottom of the muffin cup. Well, if I had read the introduction, I would have been reminded that corn syrup is not very sweet. So these muffins, while they looked very caramelly and appetizing when I took them out, they were actually not very sweet at all. And even my kids were like, why do these taste so salty? <laughs> it's not that they had a lot of salt. It's just that they didn't have very much sweetness to them. I would recommend if you try this recipe in the batter to use the honey, because like it said at the beginning, honey is the sweetest and corn syrup is the least sweet. <laughs> so that's what happens when you don't read the directions and the introduction to your cookbook. Uh, the second recipe is date peanut butter drops. I really love the combination of dates and peanut butter. To me, a great snack is just cut open a date, take out the pit, and spread in some peanut butter and just eat it. It's so good. Very basic snack. So I thought this, this has got to be a great combination because instead of using raisins in a cookie, you're using chopped up dates. And what better place to put them than in a peanut butter cookie? This cookie calls for shortening, peanut butter, half cup of sugar, half cup corn syrup or honey, teaspoon vanilla extract, two eggs, one cup chopped dates, flour, baking powder, salt, milk. And then you cream together the, the fat, peanut butter, sugar. You add the corn syrup and the vanilla extract, and then you add in the eggs. Then you add in the dates. Then you mix all the dry stuff together, and you alternate putting it in with the milk. This makes a really creamy texture. So not like what you'd think of a normal cookie batter. This is like a technique you'd use more for like a coffee cake or something like that. So I thought that was interesting. The cookies ended up being very light in texture and pretty soft. Two things I'll say about this recipe. One is that it yields four dozen two-inch cookies. That is a lot. If you don't want to commit an entire recipe to date peanut butter cookies... You could add dates to half and maybe mini chocolate chips together. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> and that way, if you don't like the dates, you've always got the chocolate as a consolation prize. Overall, I think this cookie was really nice. The dates aren't actually very pronounced in the cookie dough. I do think that they added an extra little sweetness to it and a, a tiny bit of texture. I think I'd recommend using a crunchy peanut butter. It doesn't say that in the recipe, it just says peanut butter. But I think having the crunch from the peanuts along with the dates would be really nice. Images of this cookbook and the recipes are going to be on my blog. So you can go to victorykitchenpodcast.com where you can try out these recipes for yourself. 
Finally, I'm going to tell you about the story that was shared with me from my husband's grandmother, Eloise Erickson, about her mother, Olive Bruner. A few months ago, I asked if she could share with me any memories she had as a girl growing up during the war. She grew up in northern Montana, and what she told me was that she remembered that her mother, Olive, would buy flour and sugar in 50-pound bags. Being able to buy sugar in that amount, that might have been before the sugar rationing started. But what she also said was that her mother would buy every scrap of sugar allowed to her. So when it came time for canning or baking, she always had enough. Um, She also said that she never felt like they did without anything. Her mother just continued, like always, during wartime, just baking the same things. So she doesn't remember having to do without or anything like that. She doesn't even really remember there being any special wartime recipes that her mom used. What that says to me is her mother had really good household management. She used what they had, you know, when they had it, and I'm sure they had a garden that they also grew. If you think about it, these parents that are raising kids during wartime, they have memories of the Great Depression. The Great Depression didn't end until the war started, and so there's a lot of practice already in being frugal and making do with what you had. So I really, I really like this memory. I'd, I'd like to ask her more if she remembers anything, because what I found in, you know, all these sources that I've collected over the years about wartime rationing is that the cookbooks, they, they tell you the factual things or even the hopes that the government's had for their programs. But what I'm finding is in the stories that it wasn't always the case. So really interesting stuff. And this is where I'd like to invite you to share any family stories that you have, any recipes that you have from wartime. And I would love to share them here on my podcast so that we can get a more rounded picture of what wartime rationing was like for Americans. The United States was a huge country and rationing was very different for people in all areas of the country just due to, you know, whether you lived in a city or in farm country or you lived in Alaska or Hawaii, which were territories. I mean, there's just so much going on and so many different climates and crops being grown. I mean, really just it varied so greatly. Every memory that we can add to this American food rationing story is like another thread in a huge tapestry where if we weave them all together, we will be able to see more clearly, you know, what the American experience was like in the war. To share your stories and recipes or to see images of original sugar request slips and sugar ration points, as well as today's featured cookbook, head on over to my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.